Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, it's a pleasure today to introduce kind of a, a speaker that's outside of our normal realm for critical care conference. Um, this this whole topic came up with uh, talking with Dr. Tisherman and, and saying that we need to, um, as critical care providers and, and people that are in this realm, we need to kind of start focusing a lot more on, on, on this. And there are people in the audience that have been doing research about how families and, and how they're involved. And, and so I think that this is a, a very timely topic. And as we roll out a new curriculum that we're going to be um, having in the fall with, uh, with family meetings and communication and things like that, I think this is going to be great. So it's a pleasure to, today for me to introduce Erin Gillard, who is a social worker um, and received her Bachelor's of Science from Marywood University and then her Master's of Social Work with a concentration in Maternal and Child Health from the University of Maryland in Baltimore, where she received the Juanita Evans Award for Excellence in Maternal and Child Health. Currently, she's a clinical manager for family services for the Living Legacy Foundation of Maryland. Um, in addition to doing that, she also has her certific certificate in mediation and also um, uh, does yoga therapy at Yama Studio um, as well, which all kind of fits into this to this idea of, of how we should be approaching some of this stuff, I think. So today, it's a pleasure to have Aaron um, talk to us. I, I'm going to ask if, if, if you can, for as much as as much as it's possible, to move forward, um, because the first half of this, while it'll be a PowerPoint presentation that'll be recorded, the second half is not going to be recorded, and it's going to be more of an open conversation dialogue um, between all of us and Aaron as well. So um, with that, thank you, Aaron, for coming to speak with us today, and uh, I hope you all get as much out of it as I know I'm going to. So thanks for letting me be here today. It's really an honor to be here and a privilege to, to meet with each of you. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Living Legacy Foundation, we are the agency that coordinates organ, eye, and tissue donation for the state of Maryland. So the team that I work with is the team of uh, licensed uh, mental health professionals who works with families during the end of life decisions. Uh, around organ donation. So we live and breathe end-of-life conversations. That's our day-to-day. -day. Um, so when you're meeting us on the unit, it's usually always in the midst of a crisis situation where a family is maybe in the midst of receiving news for the first time, maybe at a point where they're making decisions about uh, initiating comfort care. Um, that's, that's where we're stepping in and, and working with teams. Um, so I'm hopeful, you know, in the first bit of this to just talk a little bit about the impact of immediate grief on the ability of patients and families to comprehend information um, and talk, talk about some different strategies for family meetings and delivering news about prognosis and to discuss some ways to address goals of care with patients and their families. So, you know, when we think about family meetings and difficult bad news, you know, it's this moment is a, a critical moment for families. And they, um, this is the moment where everything changes, right? So they, they will remember this conversation. And so there isn't a lot you can do to protect them from the fact that this news is coming, but how you deliver it with compassion and making sure that they know everything is, is really important. And I hear that, I do a lot of grief counseling with our families down the road, and, and they do remember when somebody sat down with them and, and gave them that information one-to-one. Um, so when you think about families, I love this quote, a family's response to a crisis or to a new situation mirror those of a child. That is to say, the way a small child deals with a new challenge, for instance, learning to walk, has certain predictable stages, regression, anxiety, mastery, new energy, growth, and feedback for future achievement. These stages can also be seen in adults coping with new life events, whether positive or negative. 
Um, and I think it's really important to think about that when you're meeting families at this time, like that idea that in the midst of a crisis, that they are grappling at this situation, um, unless it's a family that has some folks that are really well versed in medical terminology and, and been through this kind of situation before, it's all new, everything's new. And so it's like walking them through it. Um, one of my colleagues uses this analogy of like, we're on this bridge and we're on this bridge with, we're on the one side of the bridge with our information and the family's over here. And sometimes, you know, they might start walking towards us and sometimes we need to walk over to their side and then walk them back over gently um, to, to get them to a place of understanding. Uh, so crisis, uh, you know, it's opportunity and also is a time where families search for meaning. Um, so in a lot of the work that we do with organ uh, tissue donation, you know, when I'm meeting families at this time, you hear them often just kind of creating a story of why this is happening, um, why this is going on now, um, why this maybe this tragedy has happened. Um, maybe it's you know if we were working in a situation that worked with families with suicide, like is there an end to suffering that's happening right now? Um, and so there's a real big urge, I think, as humans to put meaning to situations as they're unfolding. So when we think about grief, grief is not one size fits all. Um, it's nonlinear. Um, it's that process of integrating major losses and life transitions into our sense of ourself and our reality. So when you're talking to families at this time, it's that initial moment, right, of, of learning this news. And there is grief in that moment. And what that can look like can look like a whole slew of things. And I'm sure you all in your work now have seen the wide range that it can look like, right? Um, and that there isn't a right or a wrong to it. It's just you may see anything. And so we have a list, a whole list of feelings here, numbness, relief. Uh, sometimes there's a crisis of faith that you'll see people really struggling with in those moments. Um, I know that you know, sometimes you see it expressed as anger, which is never really towards you, but sometimes feels like it's towards you in that moment, right? Uh, sometimes it's just that, that sadness. I know, you know if you're in a family meeting where you're giving a very bad prognosis or that somebody, it's a non-survivable moment for this person that, you know, you hear that wail, you know, and you all hear that wail where, where folks are just devastated and crying and they're just in it. Um, there isn't, when you're thinking about it, like, I, th I think sometimes you can watch families and it's watching things unfold and because it's not necessarily the way you react, that sometimes there's an urge to say, like, shouldn't they be, shouldn't they be acting this way? Um, but there, we can't do that because it's not one size fits all. And it's different from person to person, family to family, culture to culture. And I think about it as like each family in some ways is its own culture. And so the way that it's gonna read out for them is different. Uh, so I, when we're thinking about how families are processing, processing information in this moment, um, it, this is all coming from our emotional brain, right? Where the limbic stem the limbic brain and the brainstem, not where the neocortex is, where that voice of reason. So when you're learning something devastating, you're taken down to that core of who you are and where you're reacting from isn't that place of logic. And so we'll talk a little bit about this as you're setting families up and recognizing the fact that you need to give space for those emotions and pauses so that folks can kind of take some deep breaths and get to that place where they can start accessing the more rational parts of their brain. Um, it's just important to think about how folks are going to be processing inter information in those moments. Um, it, when they're coming from that really strong place of emotion and like a, that's our gut survival flight or fight mode, right? 
that they're not going to necessarily hear everything you say on the first go round or second go round or third go round and may take multiple times. So when we're working with families in crisis, you often see an amplification of the strengths. Um, sometimes you'll just see that family that's completely on board and rallying around each other, and you see folks showing up, and it's, you know, even in a moment of death, it feels like this was a good moment for this family where the, that you can tell that they, they are all on board and, and there for each other. But on the opposite side, you can also see the amplifications of the challenges, that anything that happened with this family prior to this snapshot moment that you have with them is going to show up in this moment of crisis and bear it all for you to see. And, and we've seen this, and you've seen like things on units where things are happening, and you need to sometimes folks are getting escorted out, sometimes you're setting visitor restrictions, different stuff is kind of playing out, and you can just see them kind of coming down to this base of, of stuff that has unfolded months, years before this particular snapshot that you have with them. Uh, sometimes, too, you see this grief for unmet expectations. Um, I can't tell you how often I have conversations with families about who's not there in this moment um, and how much there is grief around that idea of, like, why, why isn't somebody here? And when I sit and I work with families around that, we talk about, again, how grief looks differently, and sometimes it is too much to think about for some folks, and so they shut down by just like, if I'm not there to hear the news, then maybe I don't have to admit that it's happening. Um, and But at the folks that are here having these conversations with you are the ones here hearing it, living it, breathing it, and it can be really upsetting in that moment on top of what's happening that the family members aren't there. Also the idea of regression. We kind of talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but. The idea, too, that, I mean, if everybody goes home for Thanksgiving, if you have a family that you go to have Thanksgiving and you think about what, how your Thanksgiving dinner plays out and how you may transition into, you know, a former version of yourself that would not be this first version of yourself that you'd come on to work in or, you know, go to a class and be, but it's like that base, like, I'm six again and you pulled my hair and I'm going to elbow you. Um, so th there's that regression, same kind of regression happens in a moment like this, this crisis where everybody's kind of surrounded together and you can kind of see people folding back into these versions of themselves and watching this kind of play out between different family members. So something that happens in this moment that is important to think about is the changing roles that are happening in an immediate moment. If you're working in a critical care unit and the patient's intubated and is not going to have a voice, what does the loss of that voice mean for the ability of the family to make decisions? Um, what does the loss of the voice, that voice in, mean for the ability of the family to communicate? And sometimes you'll see that if it's the matriarch of the family, she's the backbone, she's everything, and you can see folks just stumbling around not knowing what to do without her. Um, and watching maybe somebody have to step up in a way, um, I know, thinking of a situation where I was working with this family and this, her oldest son was 18, and he had some older aunts that were supporting him, but he had a suddenly, you could see him growing up in that moment where he was suddenly making these decisions for his mom. And so that's, again, as you're sitting and working with families and you have so much going on and so much on your plate, it's, and you can't think about everything all the time, 
But as you're watching things unfold, just remembering in these moments that people are in roles perhaps that they haven't been in before, that they're not necessarily going to be comfortable making these decisions if they weren't, if this was the person that was decision making. But there's a lot playing out in a abil family's ability to take in that information and, and move forward. So we think about conflict. What you're seeing in a time of crisis is one piece of a very complicated story. And expressions of anger may be due to the grief of the death of the patient and historical conflict in the family. Very rarely is an expression of anger about you. And so something that is important to think about here is too is taking sides. Um, because you may be watching something unfold and it feels completely unfair and unreasonable to maybe this, this person in the family that you're feeling kind of aligned with. But it's like that situation, like if my brother, my older brother, I can talk about any as much as I want, but if anybody else talks about him, watch out, right? So it's being mindful of like where you're gonna be pulled because we all have our own, we are all human. We all have our own personal history, our own background, our own set of baggage that we bring into every situation with us. And sometimes when you're watching family situations unfurl, it's easy to, kind of let that play in. So it's something just to be mindful of that some cases and some situations with families are gonna tug at you a little bit more, um, pull you in a little bit more into a dynamic. And again, just something to be mindful of in terms of this knowing where your triggers are, um, knowing what situations are gonna cause you a little bit more anxiety or cause you to maybe start picking sides, this family member over this family member. I think this can be particularly difficult too. I know in situations where if somebody's been estranged but is still legal next of kin hierarchy, the person who's a decision maker and is coming, kind of coming on the scene in the last minute, and this happens often, um, but we had a situation not too long ago. It was a, a gentleman who'd been raised by his grandmother. She was making all the decisions for him and his mom kind of sweeps in at the last moment and decides to go a whole entirely different route. And it can be a real struggle to watch things like that, but ultimately you have to support the next of kin in making what decisions they're gonna be making and, and try to support the grandmother too. So none of this is easy and we're gonna have emotions about it. So I encourage you too to like, make sure that you're talking to each other, um, you know, a peer, uh, supervisor, a mentor of some kind when stuff like this is playing out because it's we have our professional stance and we try to keep our ourselves together as much as we can but that we are humans and this is, sometimes these situations do pull at your emotions in a way that it's really important to find ways to take care of yourself and ventilate all that. So, so just some general statistics. So 54% of the family meetings in the ICU without family and without the family's understanding, diagnosis, prognosis, and or treatment. Um, and in a study of 1,184 ICU beds, 73.4% of family members of ICU patients met the cri cri clinical criteria for anxiety, and 35% of IC members, family members of ICU patients met the clinical criteria for depression. So some common symptoms include difficulty concentrating, remembering details, and making decisions of anxiety and depression. So thinking about that, like in that crisis moment again, when they're working from this emotional brain, that ability to process and retain information is going to be impaired, even if they're walking in at that before that moment completely fully functioning. Um, so 46% of family members still met criteria for a year out. 
and this was a poor communication from the medical team was a significant predictor, predictor for continued symptoms. Decision making can also have a negative emotional burden uh, for somebody who is a surrogate decision maker lasting for months and years out from events. Um, so there was a big review of the, the effect of being the surrogate decision maker and it's, it's, it has a really lasting impact. Um, so when you're thinking about that, when you're sitting down with somebody who's making decisions where they haven't talked about end of life stuff before with this family member and suddenly they're in a position where they have to make these decisions, that there's a tremendous burden, then that burden stays um, if they don't feel you know, they, they made a decision to withdraw in their questioning. What, did I do the right thing? So I'd like to talk a little bit about hope. Um, if you have a moment, I really recommend watching Amanda Bennett. She gives a TED talk. It's about 15 minutes long on we need a narrative, uh, a heroic narrative for death. And she, ha her husband was diagnosed with cancer um, and lived with cancer, I wanna say for seven, years and he ended his everything ended in an ICU setting um, and she just kept going and she couldn't say no so when he was admitted to the ICU it was explained to her she says in the middle of the night that he's probably not gonna survive even tonight and he lived for maybe seven days more and her only response could be like keep going and she talks about she if she believed if she she could keep him to, from dying if she just believed hard enough and so she talks about like redefining hope and being careful about the way that we use the word denial um, because we throw that around a lot like they're in denial they're not hearing us clearly they don't understand the real picture and is it denial or is it hope is it both but i think really I, it's a really wonderful talk that she gives as a family member on just the idea of it is hope like she and she's a rally for this, um, talking to other family members who have gone through similar things, where families really do believe until the very last moment that maybe there's a glimmer of possibility. And that's not denial, that's just being human. I don't want my loved one to die, I want them to be here. Um, so in our work we do donation after cardiac death, which is the compassionate extubation, and donation happens after that. And I hear often families saying, well, if there's gonna be a miracle, it might still happen when he comes off the ventilator. Maybe he's just gonna breathe on his own and, and get up and walk out of here. And that's after they've made a decision about organ donation. That's after they've made this decision to uh, end life-sustaining techniques and move into comfort care. And so they're there and they're making those decisions, but there's still this glimmer of hope. Um, I did a lot of work in, work for five years in a neonatal intensive care unit. It was very much the same where you hope you just hope because you're human. Um, so just thinking about that when you're thinking about denial, because it's not necessarily that they're not hearing you, they're hoping that, that things will be different. Um, and hope too, I think there's, and we can talk about this, people's experience with patients and religiosity and, and how that gets interwoven when families are making end of life decisions. Um, because some families are hoping for a miracle and I think they're, I'd be interested to hear your perspective and how you can support families in, in their hope and their, their faith with still giving them the information and helping guide them you know, across the bridge to where we are with what's actually happening. So family meetings should happen early and often. Uh, statistically significant decreases anxiety, depression, and PTSD are seen when the first family meeting is held within 12 hours of admission and the second within 48. And we'll talk a little bit about how family meetings 
get structured. Um, but scheduling a time and a place is really important. Uh, this isn't a bedside update. A bedside update is not a family meeting. They are two different things. Uh, this is a sit-down conversation where the family gets to ask questions and, and you really have a, a moment of time set aside for them. Um, assuming nothing about what the family knows because again, when they're working from that emotional brain, you always want to start with asking them, what do you understand so far? Because they may have heard it 15 times before you're meeting with them, but that doesn't mean that they've retained a lot. Um, and also being direct, 93% of family members surveyed said they would rather know the prognosis, even if it's poor. Um, I do a lot of work at Hopewell Cancer Support uh, with families, and this is one of their biggest frustrations with their medical care providers. They know when things have taken a turn to a place where the, their, their loved one is dying and that maybe aggressive treatment isn't the best thing. And getting the medical provider on board with that is one of their biggest frustrations. Like they feel like they're not completely honest. They're like, well, we'll still try this, we'll still try this, we'll still try this without talking about what's happening in terms of quality of life, in terms of length, in terms of all of that. Um, and so even if it's bad news, you can give bad news well. You can't change it, but you can be honest. And that, I think, in all of this is the most important thing, just being clear with what's happening. So there is um, an article, and I don't know if you get forwarded the articles uh, from a journal in Canada that talks about sharing uh, spikes. It's like an acronym for, for family meetings. So the S is setting up the meeting, arranging for a quiet space, having tissues, water, asking a family who are the key decision makers to be involved in the meeting, um, and leaving that up to the, the family, because you can have a family that has 32 people, and every one of them needs to be involved, um, and that's just the way they're going to make decisions. But you could have a family, too, where there's those 32 people in the waiting room, and they don't all need to be involved. So really having a good conversation with the people who are actually making decisions about who they want in the room. and who is important to their, their process in, in hearing information. Um, and sitting with the family is really important. So it's a lot different if I stand over you and I'm giving you news than if I'm sitting and I, there's eye contact. There's a completely different emotional feel to it. Um, the NICU I worked with at, was at Sinai and there was a whole movement. We had a, we were a badge for a while around sit down. Um, when you're sitting and you're meeting with people, it, it's such a different feel. It says, A, I have time for this conversation. I am paying attention to you, and this matters. Uh, it just feels completely different. So when I say about not, ha if you're going to have to have it at the bedside, which sometimes you do, taking the chair and sitting down, it makes a huge amount of difference as opposed to just walking in and giving the news. Uh, so again, P, assessing the patient and or family's perception about what's going on. Um, I, obtaining the patient's invitation. Um, so if the patient is you know, in a place where they're, they're participating, determining how much information the patient wants to know. Okay, giving knowledge and information, providing small chunks, and checking in periodically for understanding. And I love the question, what can I explain better? Because if you ask a family, do you have any questions? Inevitably, they're gonna say no. Um, that, that's a really hard question sometimes for them to answer. So if you say, what can I explain better? Because they look up to you, they respect you, you're coming in, you are, the medical care professional who's helping them through this moment, what can I explain better, kind of gives them permission to say, well, I really didn't quite get this. Can you, can you tell me that again in a different way? E, addressing emotions with empathetic responses. I, I can tell you we're not expecting to hear this. I'm sure this is overwhelming. It's okay to take some time. 
and summarizing the major areas discussed and making a plan for the next meeting if there's going to be a next meeting. So again, in discussing goals of care, think questions like, has your family been in a situation like this before? What worries you the most? How would you like to spend this remaining time with your loved one? And so using language aligned with how the patient and family has made decisions in the past can be helpful in meetings. I'm going to talk a little bit, I want to make sure we have time for discussion too, but a little bit about presence versus comfort. So in a situation that you're in, in an end-of-life situation, you, there is really, comfort is like trying to make somebody feel better about something, right? And, and there's nothing that you can really do to make them feel better about this really sad and devastating thing that's happening. It, you won't make it better, but you can be present and bear witness. And those are two different things. And so sometimes in our urge to comfort, I know I am a touchy-feely social worker. I like to hug. That's mine though, that's on me, that's what I need, and that's not necessarily what the person in front of me needs. So just knowing yourself and minding those habits I think is important. Uh, touch can be really powerful, but you wanna make sure you kinda have permission. You know, a safe place is usually the arm. Um, it is less threatening than, than anywhere else. And you can tell by somebody's body language if they are, that's not something that they, they need from you right now. So present is just there being there and bearing witness. And it is a huge gift to families in these moments that we are there to bear witness to what's going on, um, that, that we were walking with them at this time. So again, aspects of presence, sitting down, eye contact, active listening. And silence can be really important and powerful for a few reasons. You're giving the family a moment to pause and take in everything that they've heard. You're also giving them a moment to take in some deep breaths so that, that maybe they can begin to get that rational part of their brain to kick in so they can think about the information that's coming in. Um, we tend to want to fill up noise. It gets to be really uncomfortable, but it's really powerful and really important. And you find if you, in a family meeting, if you can just wait a couple moments and ride out the silence and just try it, it's like excruciating because it feels in, to you, I swear, a lot longer than it'll feel to the family member, that then they'll speak and then they'll have a question. So sat, just don't underestimate the value of, of how important silence can be. Um, also, in shedding tears, I have this discussion a lot with professionals about like, is it okay if I cry? Um, and we never want to be in a place where the family suddenly in a moment where they have to take care of us. <laughs> for you, but yes, I, I, you shed, there are gonna be moments where you can't help but shed a tear because we're human. And I think it's such a gift to show the families that we work with that we're human and that we're connected and that I think like it's a recognition of what's happening, like how powerful this is and how sad this is. And there are gonna be those cases that hit you where you're not gonna be able, you don't have to hold it together. You know, again, if you're gonna, if you need more, you can step off the unit and get yourself together. Um, but, but to shed a tear in front of a family, I think can be a really tremendous gift for them and they remember that. Uh, I can't tell you how often you hear like, you could tell that doctor really cared, that nurse really cared about me because you know they were in it with me. So again, although these are a problem in every instance, not using language like I know how you feel and at least phrases are the worst thing in the world. So no at least ever, <laughs> um, at least. Uh, and you hear that a lot from grieving families. Where, and I think what it comes out is like there's a tendency to want to silver line something for somebody. Like let, what is the better, how can I make this feel better? And at least come out of our urge to do that. But again, you're not gonna make this feel better. You can just, again, thinking about it as bearing witness as opposed to I need to help you 
feel better now. I'm going to bear witness to the fact that this is happening and walk with you through it. Again, time heals all wounds. God has a plan. I always follow family's lead on, on spirituality. Um, every family is different, and if a family is going there, then I'll support them in that, but it's nothing that I would ever implement on a family that, you know, without their permission. And again, keeping in mind that our urge to say something is more about us than, again, filling up those gaps, filling up that silence than necessarily be about what the family needs. So cultural considerations, just thinking about, you know, talking, honestly, every family is different. I really do believe every family has its own culture regardless. So having a good conversation about what are their rituals um, with coping with dying, who's important to be talking to about information, uh, what are their beliefs about what happens after death. I just, the more with any sort of these considerations with any family, there's no harm in asking and people are often again, so feel supported by the fact that you're asking about how can I best help you with whatever needs your family has in this moment. So I'm going to open it up now. Um, have a little bit more conversation and talk a little bit about your experiences with meetings, where you've been comfortable. Have, can you all hear me? Be okay? So this is where we, we have to talk. <laughs> Um, how, how many of you have had to facilitate one of these conversations? Okay. And how did it feel? I'm going to pick on you. And I didn't mean to pick on people. <laughs> um, so I'm neurology trained, so this is something that we start early in our training. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. Um, it's always difficult, but I think it helps to prepare to talk to the team. <coughs> It is tough. It is tough. And I, I like what you said. Like the idea of pausing, I think, before you're walking into these situations is really important. You're on a critical care unit, unit and you are hustling the entire time. Like that's it. Like your life is hustle. And so really taking a moment to mindfully pause before you're walking into these meetings can be really powerful. Either to tag team about, I'm about to give this, let me practice language on you. And not being afraid to do that could be, because it's, when the words come out of your mouth, like it's, it's good to have a sense of what you're going to be saying. Um, but also just to kind of recheck into doing things like checking the medical record. What is this patient's name? Um, because you know you're kind of in that moment, and we all do it. You're busy, you're hustling, you're, what number is their chart, you know, and kind of reconnecting with what is the patient's first name? Because that's really important for families when you're in there and just saying, you know, what would John want? Let's talk about John as a human being, and what kind of person is John, and how can we support what John would want in this situation? Um, but yeah, I think that's a great great to, to stop and pause. Other thoughts on, on what is helpful, has been helpful in the meetings that you facilitated? Yeah. 
without that, it's very easy to start getting somebody's going to throw under the bus or just, just confuse the family or something. They'll leave me down the wrong pathway. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, so figuring out which which of your team members are going to be in the meeting and, and communicating with them ahead of time about what's the plan for family meetings. Um, and the work I do with Living Legacy, we're coming into end-of-life meetings either at the time where a patient has uh, been declared brain dead or if a family's made uh, the compassionate decision to withdraw and perhaps donation is an option. And something we do that is our practice is to stop and pause and huddle with whoever's leading the meeting, whatever social work supports there, bedside nurse, anybody who's involved so that we can be on the same page. Because I mean, you know how it is when you get shift report and you hear this and this hurt that, and it's often a game of telephone game. Um, and I say too, like I'll read notes about a case and until I'm in it, like the notes that I've read about the report before are, never it always can paint a picture that isn't necessarily true rarely true you know you walk in because it's it can change too in a moment like it their initial reaction to news if you had a family meeting yesterday maybe have been completely different from where they are today so that that pause and that huddle gives you an omen to like what's the bedside nurse seeing now where are they now how and, and making again sure like we're all we're all on the same team we're all on the same page who's leading and and how are we giving information yeah. thank you very much this was very helpful um, one thing uh, i think i found that is very challenging in family meetings is when the family asks um, how much time do we have mm -hmm. how long and that's a very difficult question to answer because i think the one thing that we really don't want to do is give the wrong answer Mm -hmm. Not like there is really a correct answer, but to say, oh, you know, they'll probably die in a day, and then the patient lives another week, or the, you know, the other way around. So right. I didn't know if you had any. I think it's okay to say that you don't know. Yeah. You know, like reasonably, like I, there's no. And again, I, I think it makes you human again. Like I think families do come to you and expect you to to have a lot of answers and a lot of the information. But you know, when we talk about because we have that conversation with families a lot around donation after cardiac death, because sometimes we we do this whole predictor tool. So donation after cardiac death is when donation happens within sixty to minutes to two hours after extubation. And we do we have a predictor tool and we do the best we can to prepare. But one of the family the, one of the things that I say to families is we think that this is what might happen and this is my my best you know estimate of what could happen but not everything's under my control and and John has a will of his own and all of these things are going to factor into what's happening now and so although we think it could happen in this time frame it might be longer and just saying i saying you don't know i think is is okay in that moment just being as clear with what you can expect um, but acknowledging the fact that you don't have an exact answer so I, uh, for family meetings, I actually have an algorithmic approach, and it works like a charm. Yes. For the most part. And we'll get into it later. But, uh, I would love to hear your algorithmic approach. And we do a talk on it uh, on Thursday, so we'll, uh, yeah. um, But the first part of it is, um, you know, besides introducing myself and my team to each and every one of them, I'm trying to connect with them and, and create sort of a uh, welcome atmosphere. I just have them start out by saying, will you, um, I, you know, thank you all for coming, showing your support for John. Um, clearly, you know, care about him. Um, 
Now, I, I'm going to let you all tell me what your understanding is of what's going on. And so when you start with that, it, does not ju it doesn't just convey the factual information. It gives you a, I just sit back and I'm really watching family dynamics and how they interrupt one another or don't, or to whom they defer um, the decision making. And you can, you can gauge religious um, uh, beliefs, educational um, you know, background for the most part. Um, socioeconomics, uh, intra-family um, relationships, and the actual knowledge and understanding of what's going on with the job. Yeah. So that's what I'm... It's a wonderful way to start a meeting. It is. That's, that's split, right? That's, but that's what the split algorithm is. I, mean, I find the one, the one tweak that I've done to the split algorithm is I don't like the word understanding because mm -hmm. it puts people on the spot. Mm -hmm. So you understand or don't you understand? Right. So I actually phrase it in a way, what I ask is, I know you've met with a lot of doctors and nurses and people along the way, what have they been telling you? And what? I find that does two things. It gives sympathy for, wow, you've been put through the ringer with information, and just tell me I'm not asking for understanding. Yeah, I love that. That's wonderful. Um, that, that less pressure on the spot. Kind of in the same, like, what questions do you have? Like, I, like finding ways to rephrase that because, the, like, that pressure to, like, oh, well, I heard it all and I'm supposed to understand it all. And of course they aren't. You know, of course they're not going to. Oh, got thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say that a lot of what we're focusing on right now is, is kind of the setup of the meeting and going into the meeting. But I think it's also equally important after the meeting with the people that were in there from the healthcare team to, to kind of debrief a little bit mm -hmm. from, from, the, uh, from the meeting itself especially if you're going to have another meeting that's coming up, because what your perception of the situation was, as you discussed, uh, may not have been the resident's perception of the situation, or may not have been the nurse's perception. And, and to get everyone kind of on the same page as to what, what the process was, I think that debrief is important as well. Yeah, I, you're, yeah, I completely think you're right. Like, I think, think a lot of family meetings I come out, and I'm like, this is my understanding of what was happening, but a nurse sitting there like, might have had a completely different perspective of, of what the family had heard in the moment. So, when you walk yeah. out of the, the, the reason why it's important is because we, we walk out of the room and we disperse. Right. Like the nurse goes back to the room at the bedside where these guys, the family members, are going to go back to. Yes. And they're going to have kind of all this information going around. And so making sure that we're all conveying kind of the same, the same message. Because I, I think the bedside nurse also has, often has the meeting after the meeting, right? So, so I think that that's that's big, and they they do. It's like, and I think it's that did you get everything? Did do you understand everything? And the questions that they maybe felt intimidated to ask in the meeting, they might be asking in that moment. Uh, I think one thing that's important, though, is from what I look at the literature, is is to understand that the family meeting works within an entire array of communication strategies mm -hmm. and not this idea of we save ourselves only for the meeting at 12 hours, the meeting at right. 48 or 72 hours. And then when you actually, a study last year that was nested within ArtsNet, when you talk to the families as the stakeholders, right, they actually wanted more frequent, less formal communication. That's not a substitute for the family meeting, but essentially incorporating a combination of family-centered rounds with the family meeting is a really powerful combination because the family feels like they've been in the loop, they feel empowered, they're not disengaged. And at the moment when you come to the family meeting, it's, it's a very direct approach in which you can really hone in on values and goals um, without going through the rigmarole trying to overcome a, a dearth of communication. That's what, are you guys doing family-centered rounds here? We don't have, we don't have protocol. It's, mm -hmm. it's attending-dependent. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can tell you that, that I've done family-centered rounds 
consistently for the last couple of years, and I've been amazed at the difference it's made. That's that's in work in NICU. In NICU, it tends to lend itself more to family-centered care just because of the nature of what it is. Like like the rounds, I think, are where I was working was set up in the very much the same way. And what you're saying is, is true. Like you sit down for the formal family meeting, but it wasn't like the first time they were hearing that information. And you already have a rapport built um, with, you know, in NICU, there are long stays. So with all of the attendings, by the time they're sitting down for different meetings, but it, yes, um, just it, getting that information is, is as they're going along is, is really powerful. And rounds I know are like that, it's touchy and it feels like it's one of those things. I think it's one of those things that we're, are we trying to protect folks from not being in rounds to hear everything? And really like thinking about that, like what are you protecting them from in that moment? Um, the, what's that's, happening? That's a cultural you know? issue because yeah. pediatric intensive care has been family-centered rounds for over a decade. And they have plenty of literature to show that it increases nursing satisfaction and obviously increases family satisfaction it doesn't seem to affect medical student or trainee um, education, and it just seems to work, and it's just a given in that culture. Mm -hmm. um, I think we still have these sort of things that we're, we, we posit are the reasons we don't want to do it, but none of them actually have any basis in reality. Yeah, great. Yeah, so I think that was a question about clinical situation that sometimes comes up on the trauma side where we have somebody that comes in, say, with a shot in the head, mm -hmm. and we don't really have time to have family necessarily because the prognosis is really rapid and the question is sort of I've read through the policy of the university and it says that we under no circumstances should mention the organization right um, and I find that that's going to be tough in those specific situations to allow the family to even have that option because you guys are not in-house 24 7 right and uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts as to how we could work with that situation where the patient comes in and you have a non-survivable injury, but they're also you know, hemodynamically unstable, requiring multiple days of pressures, and you're asking the family, you know, within minutes of the patient arriving, to have some uh, discussion about the immediate you know, kind of life. Uh, An immediate end of life decision. So it, and the true is amazing at calling us and letting us know when those situations are unfolding. And so on our side, we're trying to get there as fast as we can. Um, so on our side, we'd ask like, is there time to be bought? And if there's no time to be bought, then we would just want a good communication with you about what that's going to look like. Because our, on our side, like when you start the topic of, of organ donation and you don't have all the knowledge behind it, then families begin, they start making the decision as soon as we say the word out loud, right? Um, and so why we say don't mention it is not out of lack of faith of your ability to be wonderful with families and support them in that moment. It's just that we want to be there to make sure that they're, they're informed about have all the accurate information they need to, to make that off, make that decision. And also if their loved one's designated to to be able to talk to them about that because that, that impacts how we use language with families. Um, so we ask, you know, if there's ways to buy time, you know, like in that initial moment, you're giving them that bad prognosis. And it, honestly, if they're going to stay clinically unstable, you know, we're going to be there as soon as we can and see what's possible. And so you don't necessarily need to mention it in that initial conversation because they're still going to be hit with that brunt of news. You know, and you can say another team is it will be arriving to talk to you soon uh, about next steps. Um, you know, and and 
and we'll be there as soon as we can. And if the patient is really hemodynamically unstable in those moments, like it, we might get there and not have to talk to them about donation and all. That's the other thing. Like because if like there's if the patient starts coding and dying while we're in route, then then we wouldn't interact with them anyway. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> I actually follow up on my experience dealing with this because if if there are like two things going on, like patient rupture spleen and a friend's head injury, and you're questioning you should you take a video or take a spleen, knowing that the head's in the mm -hmm. that that's complicated and that patient is not going to be a, a donor unless for whatever reason they're going to decide you should take a head's clean out. But you know, if it's purely a head injury and the patient's actually unsafe because of that, mm -hmm. my experience has been that almost invariably, if you sit there for a little bit, really work on them, you can make them stable. And if you can't, they're not going to donate anyway. So I, it's not so much of an issue. Right. And rushing to either get cranial examination done quickly or get be able to go involved early when and I have an institution a couple times been pushed to do that kind of stuff like in the middle of the night. It's never worked out for the family or for the OPO or anybody. So I mean, if you can't get a stable, you know, then you just can't. Yeah. And but you gotta work on it, you usually can and then and the time yeah. for the family to And it can never, it, it's also not a good thing for the family. Like if you're sitting down with a sit down and your first sit down is like gunshot wound to the head, he's not going to make it. Let's talk about organ donation. All of, that's too much for a family all in one conversation. Um, and it, it can sometimes be a struggle for them. Um, and from my call shift experience, I've been here plenty of times at two in the morning in cases like that where they end up getting stable. We go to four south, there's brain death testing and we're just hanging out and we don't interact with the family until then. So. Um, I wouldn't know you'd never feel pressured to to talk to them about it if for some reason we're not able to be here you're gonna have a conversation with us over the phone about what that would look like but in that initial meeting I don't feel pressured to say anything about it because it, it would be too much for them anyway big advocate of people talking talk to your families about what you want and make those decisions ahead of time because you know 
with whatever they may be because you can see you I just see how much easier it is for families when I'm following a wish it's also giving folks in that moment when we I've talked about how people folks are making meaning and you see people putting pieces together when they somebody had a very clear advanced directive and very was very clear about their wishes that they feel like they're honoring their loved one in that moment by following everything this is what he wanted this is what he wanted this is what he wanted yeah wonderful other thoughts before we wrap up what are your opinions on giving families time deadlines to make decisions? I don't like that. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Um, I, and when when do you feel you'd be in a situation where you'd need to give them a time deadline? I think when we have a number of situations in the intensive care unit where the uh, the patients you know, can stay there for weeks on end, mm. the families trying to make a decision about what they want for that loved one to have you know, full aggressive care or not. Right. And um, that, you know, in, obviously it's a very difficult decision for them, but it also takes some resources from the hospital. And, uh, but the question would be, you know, their uh, reasonable you know, time. Uh, it's obviously not saying you have two hours to make the decision, but you have two days mm -hmm. as opposed to Rather, what I would say, rather, in, in two days, we're going to sit and talk about this again. You know, or in 24 hours, we're going to sit and have another meeting. And that's not a pressure to have a decision, but we're going to sit and have another meeting so we can talk about what that looks like. I think when you're looking at a situation where somebody's going to end up in a long-term care facility, um, it's really important to have families have an accurate picture of what that's going to look like for their loved one. Because um, you see a lot of times families end up choosing that option and then not really understanding what that means, that that doesn't mean your patient, your, your loved one's gonna be in, in a long-term facility for two weeks and is coming home, that this is months, 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 years, maybe never ever looking like anything other than they look like right now. Um, so rather than timing the decision, I time coming back and regrouping. And it, with a situation like that, then you want like a daily meeting, like we're gonna sit down and, and talk about this again um, so that I can answer the questions um, that you have and what and asking what are you struggling with here and how can I help give you more information about that other thoughts on that yeah I mean some another nuance that could be a time limit of trial of something like we might say okay let's give the antibiotics another three days or you know, whatever whatever the intervention is and some reasonable time frame and say then we're going to sit down as you say we discuss it see where we are it's not saying that time you can make a decision after right. that. We're going to try this. This is the time frame we think it'll be useful or not. And then we'll look and see what happens. Mm -hmm. So that's the strategy. I think that's a team effort, too. I think that's a good time to get your social work Because a lot of times I hear other people say, What is your application Or what are your concerns? Because we know people can't stay in the hospital forever. Mm -hmm. They do have to leave. But also, from a social work standpoint, it's going to take a while for them to be placed anyway. So they're still, while we're working with them, they're still coming to terms with the fact that this has got to happen. Mm -hmm. But we're supporting them emotionally through it while doctors are still doing the medical aspect of it. So I think leaning heavily on a social worker at that time <clears throat> is probably key to making sure that patient is placed sooner than later versus just sitting there and doing something. I wanted to follow up on Brian Ireland's thought about decisions. You know, there's no question that this is a huge skill set. It's a 
major process that we have to learn how to do. And there's many, many, many nuances. And one of the many, I think, is for us as care providers to make our own decision of what we think should be done for this patient. And go in with that and not, once you lay the scene for the patient, the family, give them your recommendation as opposed to lay out 20 choices and I'll get back to you and let's choose. So here's a very common one. Well, do you want us to compress on his chest and provide electric shock and IV medications and intubate? They don't want, they don't understand that. You're the professional, you kind of know where they're going and you should say, I think it is now, for instance, time to withdraw life support and let mother nature take its course. They may or not agree with you, but you need, I think you need to give them a clear message. I was at an ethics training, kind of talking around that, about how we lean on autonomy too much, almost, like looking at ethics of things. Um, and when you're working, just saying just that, that when you're working with a family, they don't know all of the information that you know in terms of stuff. So is there ways to lead people that it's, it, that, 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 and it is ethical to do that because you do have that knowledge base? Guidelines and that make it specific that to talk about goals of care, you don't need to go over each individual component of care to adequately discuss those ethically. So, so out of curiosity for the trainees in the audience, how, how many of you think that you get proper training on how to have a family meeting um, in, in critical care? You do, Not in critical care, I got it in neurology. Right. We're close with health care yeah, so, so it's interesting because one of the things that happens a lot in the ICU is that we, we want our trainees to, to kind of learn how to do this and take the reins and, and go in and have a family meeting. I think one thing that's not emphasized enough is, is the practice. You don't go up and give a talk in front of um, 45 or 50 people without practicing that talk multiple times, right? Well, unless you're Mike McCurdy. Um, and, and, and so using your attending to say, this is what I'm going to say, this is how I'm going to do it. And as attendings, we have to hold you to a standard because having been on the receiving end of, of family meetings, um, it's really hard to go in there and, and it's not really something where it's like, you know, you, you do it and, and you, you, I'll give you feedback afterwards and if you mess it up, that's okay. Because it's really a, a tough, I, I think this is not a time where we can mess up family meetings. Um, and so that's a plug for, for stuff that we're developing for the, for the fall with Living Legacy, um, uh, helping us and talking about communication, things like that, and how we can better teach this to our trainees um, and potentially even some of our, our faculty members um, that, that might need a refresher course on, on how to have a family meeting as well. Um, but I, I think I'd like to thank you for coming today and starting the conversation, and, and we're going to continue to build on this. Um, and we look forward to hearing Mike's outcomes and talk. I do. On, 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 on I'd like notes. <laughs> thank you.